Hello, and welcome to the Creative Playing Podcast Network. Join us as we get to share some great convention panels we were able to attend at CocoCon 2019 up in Phoenix, Arizona. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening.
He's so good. And he's like a death in the morning rather than a death in the afternoon. Yeah. Hi, Rapunzel's. So I have been sewing for um, a long time. I'm self-taught. I've been costuming in a more formal capacity for the last 20-ish years. Um, Tempest actually has much more formal training than I. I was so taught too initially, but yes. Yeah, no. But then I did work in a uh, professional costume shop for a while. <laughs> She's so modest, I have to remind her of these things. Um, but we do a lot of work together in Tuton. We work frequently in the workshop of June together, so we're grand collaborators. Yes. And we have a passion for Victoriana, which we express through steampunk fashion. Um, and uh, often when we are at panels talking about costuming, something will come up and someone will say something that's something like, is it difficult, you know, die of like X, Y, or Z? And we're like, well, no, but they did die from, you know, die X, or they died from that time the billiard balls exploded, or they caught on fire and lit up like Roman candles. So, we thought it might be fun to actually put together a panel just about the death rather than teasing you with the death <laughs> during other panels and then just say, oh, but we can't get into that. We have to get back into the really engrossing details about how we stitch the scene. No one wants to know about death. That's not interesting. But well, anyway, we have a passion for history yes, as we well. Do. So we thought you know, let's combine these lovely humorous anecdotes of people dying <laughs> into one full panel. So here we are. Yes. Uh, to torture all of, I mean, to help all of you. Enlighten. Yeah, enlighten. Enlighten. Oh, that's a good verb. Mm -hmm. So, um, there were many ways to die by fashion in the Victorian era. One of them was not uh, being crushed to death by your corset. I just like to get that out of the way. And also, as a note, people were not having ribs removed and also dying from that process. Because elective surgery was not a thing in the 19th century. In fact, we really tried to avoid that altogether because you were likely to die. So Everything was out to get you. It's not just paranoia. <laughs> The interesting thing about the 19th century is how many people actually lived. Yes. Rather than the way they died. Well, how they they tried to have as many children as possible. Well, I mean, I think that was part of it. A war of attrition. Right, they're like, <laughs> well, we'd better have 10 because we've got 20% survival rate. I don't think that's actually an exaggeration. Yeah. <laughs> especially if you're living in London where the uh, smoke was... Right, oh, the air quality was yes. so good. Was, there was no air, there was only smoke. It was soot. soot. So, there was a lot of a kind of death and destruction and maiming that happened just with those sorts of uh, industrial practices over the 19th and 18th century that were not friendly to things like keeping all your fingers or not being poisoned were not being irradiated and turned into like a natural self or filling your lungs with cotton fibers because the gins were <laughs> oh no oh no yes. cotton lungs yes. yes so another death by fabric another death by fabric well that's it's just in the process of making the fabric well that's the thing the people who died the most from fabric were actually the people producing it so because these processes were often so toxic that and there was no OSHA in place to protect people from safety hazards in the workplace, the the masters, the owners were like, Well, we know that if you get this into your person, it is arsenic and so it causes this whole thing where you will be poisoned to death slowly over the next nine months, but we are going to pay you like five pence a day, so. Enjoy. Um, right. Um, and, and arsenic is a prime culprit. So in the dying process, um, oh, <laughs> yeah. let's clarify, 
D-Y-E, not D-I-E. But when you say dying process, you meant the D-Y-E. I did mean the D-Y-E and not the D-I-E, although we will get to that. One leads to the other. So you may or may not, obviously, Dr. Schrodinger's box will be statement. You may be familiar with um, Sutsu's that, that beautiful emerald green or the, the bright green that you see uh, in the earlier part of the 19th century, so in the 1850s, 1840s, and um, especially the 1850s, 1950, the big forest red. Gorgeous, gorgeous green, um, Schlaf's green and or Paris green, Go by both names, uh, was very popular. And um, it turns out that getting a green color that vibrant is very challenging. So, the natural dye, if you've never had been using before, you'd have to layer a color like use blue and yellow together in some order to get it green, or you would get a sort of muddier green that was right out of nature. And so both of those processes were undesirable in that as the two-tone green faded, and it would fade rather quickly, the underlying color would start to come through and change the shade as it were. Or go gray. Or go gray, yeah. And then with the natural sorts of um, greens out of plant materials, you would end up with this muddier tone because you didn't want it suddenly vibrant. Well, Victoria's pop, something that would like that burdens green that just you know, <laughs> yeah, eye <laughs> pleasing colors. Mm -hmm. And so, a delightful gentleman out of Germany um, discovered a way to create what he called Schloss Green. And it turns out, arsenic mm -hmm. is a wonderful way <laughs> of making the green. Because people like to wear this bright green 
in their gowns, but going out to balls, in their headpieces, so especially... You want to make a statement. <laughs> and you really want all of your accessories to match, so very popular in the mid-19th century, these little flower crowns that you'd wear as if you were an angelic creature floating about in your unnaturally green gown through the throngs uh, by candlelight. And um, so the leaves were delicately dusted with more of the shroff's green in a powder form. So the powder form, of course, aerosolizes. Oh, the share. Yes. Very like. So well, it just goes everywhere. It's like, oh, let me into your lungs. Every time you breathe, be really great. I'm here for you. You will die. Um, and I'll settle upon your skin and oh, absorb it. Right, no, and then you'll perspire, and I will off-gas some more, and I'll poison your mates right there. And that gentleman you were also hoping to like woo. Uh, so. These people were starting to break out in rashes, hives, and eczema, and illness from this arsenic that was off-gassing. Um, a rash of deaths? A rash of deaths. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize. You'll just have to get used to it. <laughs> Good working conditions. So she was getting five pence a day 
That's a good deal and porridge. No complaints, get back to work. So the complaint started uh, six months earlier than her eventual death. And by the time she died, she actually, her eyes had turned green, the whites of her eyes, and she started frothing and bleeding out of the mouth, went into convulsions and passed away. And at the end, the newspapers were so delighted to report that she said, her last words were, all I see is green now. So this set off a, a big investigation and an uproar about the terrace green tie. All of the debutantes and the fine ladies who were wearing the dresses were attacked and ridiculed for being, you know, the source of death of these poor flower girls and these women making the fabrics. Do you think they ever complained about the chemists mm -hmm. or the people who invented the dye? No, they did not. But those fellows continued to make a profit by turning their dye into rat poison. And so I believe even today you can find uh, the same compound in rat poison. And thus make those florets, um, tuliers, especially in France, still consider green to be bad luck <laughs> because of the death. They may not remember the details, but that sort of urban legend of the death by green lives on. So how many died dying your dress? <laughs> I had 16 for mine. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question, is it is? Uh, yeah, so, and those women actually did suffer ill consequences from wearing those dyes, but they were not aware came from the clothing. They really were breaking out in hives, getting ill themselves, because they were not facing the same magnitude of exposure. They didn't usually die, but they got quite ill. So, and, and it was a reoccurring illness. They might start to feel a little better, but then it would just keep coming back. Oh yes, they'd be in their night clothes, hanging out in bed for a few days, and then, oh, I'm feeling better. You think they got time off? Well, if they, if they were upper class. Children being sent to nursery, right? Women never had anything. <laughs> so, it makes me wonder about Scarlett O'Hare in the green dress. <laughs> actually, uh, yeah, I never thought about that, but yes. <laughs> oh, those green curtains were actually exactly the right shade to be in that family, that vibrant deep green. And um, so, historically, they probably would have been full of ferris green. <laughs> to murder the people on, on old terror. <laughs> <laughs> so that place was cursed. That's good. Terror. <laughs> terror instead of terror. But you know, the hunger for vibrant colors did not end with the Paris Green incident. People still really wanted so much color. It was a new era, it was a new age of adventure and exploration. In Europe, they were certain that science could solve many of these issues. But also in the course of adventure, people were going to places with things called mosquitoes and malaria. There are very few things to do with malaria except quinine. So uh, ye or gin and tonic is your perfect <laughs> malaria sort of uh, avoidance technique. Chin hour. Um, <laughs> Anti-malaria hour. So the thing is the British Empire only had one source of quinine and that was from Central America. So it was very dear, it was hard to get and other places that had not colonized that area and pillaged the resources really had a hard time because in imperialism you need to be first on the scene. Yeah, well, it's all about the flag. Who gets their flag there first? Right. Who's going to steal these resources? It's so hard. But it's, it's very difficult to um, get a good price on resources that your adversaries are stealing. So a young 
chemist in England, knowing that it was so hard to cure quinine, knew that there would be a wonderful market for a synthetic quinine. And so he started experimenting with synthesizing quinine in his home laboratory, which I'm certain was completely safe. Oh yeah. I'm certain that he used all manner of precautions and had a really good ventilation system and good chemical disposal practices. Because no, probably not. So um, his name was William Perkin and he was failing a lot at the synthetic quinine. Failure after failure. It's all a success of genius. But did he not have a success? He did have a success. What was that success, Madam? One day, whilst he thought he had failed terribly, his tube turned an ungodly Taurish black. And he, he was feeling like he'd lost his glass work as well as the chemicals. So he went in to try and clean out the tube. And as he put his rag in there to clean it out, his rag came out a sort of intense mauve, purpley mauve shade. He pulled it out and he's like, I can't believe it's black in the tube and now it's, now it's this colour. How did that happen? And then he tried to clean the rag off with some alcohol spirits and the, the colour just went everywhere and it set and he could not get it out of the bag. And that's when he realized, I created a dye. He had made the first synthetic dye, which was Mauveen. And uh, he, being actually quite a bright young fellow, unlike, you know, many people in science I know today who are more altruistic and not looking for profit, his first thought was, I could sell this to so many people. And they so sell.
So they were like, oh, we've got this terrible dross, this coal tar, we can't do anything with it. Let's turn it into dye. It should be fine. Make money on both ends. What? It's brilliant. The perfect Victorian principle. Exactly. All We're recycling. None of the research. <laughs> <laughs> And 
Um, it's actually used in medicine. It was, you know, I've definitely put some pep in your step or <laughs> something. <laughs> and they use many lovely things in their medication. So, so this arsenic. I don't think we'll come through. Yeah. I think arsenic might be the problem. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm jumping the gun of blaming innocent old arsenic. <laughs> No, we can't do that. I'm, I'm here to blame the ladies for just wearing green. Let's just blame them. Yes. Can't be the guy. <laughs> so, um, right, so so they investigated and they found that in these enzymes are the same arsenite that's present, uh, that was part of the chemical reaction with the gold bar. And so there was a sudden, you know, excitement in the parliaments and other governing bodies to put a kibosh on the widespread use of arsenic and to put some restrictions in place. However, the thing they did not restrict was how arsenic was used in any chemical industrial processes. <laughs> there continued to be arsenic deaths from fabric and arsenic illness from fabric for years to come. Um, yes, as a matter of fact, now we had pretty much called it arsenic green <laughs> as opposed to Paris green. It's true. It has been redubbed. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That is generally what we call it. Um, or at least we do. Yeah. So I, don't, I don't think that's common. I think it's catching on. It's catching on. <laughs> we're, we're about that. The end. <laughs> so, um, but you know, dying of die was not the only way to dye the fabric. No, but another very, very common way involved flame <laughs> and explosions. So in the you know, past, it may surprise you to note that they were not wearing polyester and there wasn't flame retardant fabrics. It was all natural fibers. Well, gee, I'm awfully glad my fabric isn't going to melt. Well, I mean, I prefer not to be melted into my garments, but we will talk about someone who was. Um, so, uh, but the, the thing is that these fabrics will burn, cottons and linens will burn fairly quickly. Now, if it's, if it's lift and close to your body, um, or, you know, curtains and you can pull it down, you can pick it out pretty quickly. But if your if your highly flammable fabrics have a sort of glue built into them, a chimney <laughs> system developed into the garments, <laughs> then it sort of feeds them quickly with all this oxygen that's just sitting around waiting to explode into a Roman candle of haberdashery and high fashion. Yes. So hoop skirts were actually the very best way to feed a fire. Because you just were walking around in your very own chimney. <laughs> or chimney. Yeah, uh, no, no. The <laughs> stove from the waist down. And you're the glue. <laughs> and you're the glue. And these women were corseting and they were wearing fairly heavy garments. Mm -hmm. And you can't really see your feet, you can feel them, but you can't see them. You just know that hoop edge is out there somewhere. And uh, when you run into people, it's like bumper cars in fashion. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Hello! <laughs> Hello! Oh! Ooh. Pinball when you hit the bumper. Okay. <laughs> so that's how you can tell your spatial awareness is running into each other. Um, but that did mean you would not necessarily notice if you walked into the fireplace. And there was so much lifeware in candles, lanterns, cooking. A spark could just fall onto your gown and that would be enough with that glue inside, that chimney built into your garment to set the whole thing alight. And even earlier when they were wearing uh, many, many petticoats and not with the crinoline that created the flue, the heaviness of the petticoats, the froth of the petticoats, still built in a fair amount uh, of air, but for those with just so many layers and so much weight, it was harder to 
move someone to get physical tabs if they've got some fire. But once we inject someone in, we immediately mm-hmm. have this shimmy effect and people will go up like Roman candles. They will just burn from, from head to toe so quickly. And it would spread. As we discussed last night, you have three <laughs> debutantes in a row. One catches fire, and they're all gone. <laughs> three pure debutantes, and they're off. So, so there were some changes made. You know, the ultimate invention of the elliptical hoop and the bustle cage. And, and, and as it progressed to gas lights, um, there were, you know, you still had open flame, but it was usually a little more but that was later in the century. As the hoops elevated. were already also as the hoops were already being elongated, as that was happening, the gaslight was becoming more prevalent. Yeah. Um, but when they were really big, there was just not fire much. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and you know, the, one of the best flame retardants you could have at the time was preserved wool. So the wool, the lanolin in the wool, would keep it from. Flame. It would smolder more, right. but it wouldn't like burst into flame. And depending on what they're using to like clean or starch the fabrics, because a raw cotton like in a t-shirt is, is gonna burn a little bit. It will like just catch fire. But depending on what you have, you know, cleaned it with, or you know, dyed it, dyed with. it with. <laughs> The way in starch, <laughs> that usually the sort of like homemade starch from tubers, mm-hmm. so it's plants, starch, and the garments. But that's it would, uh, yes, go up nice and bright. <laughs> and there were many women who died in this way, tragically. It was mostly initially the poor women, although sometimes their husbands, the, the men in their lives, would catch a light trying to put them out at the same time. You know, a couple or a family have several losses. But again, 20% survival rate, so people were just like, well, that's, that's just how we roll here, you know. It's either poison or fire. Yes. Or cholera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but now there are other ways of inducing fire in fabric. Well, you talked about the gas lights. And it's true, for the average person, the gas light was up high, and you were unlikely to walk into it with your dressing. But if you were a ballerina, or a theatrical, the live light, the gas light was at foot level, it was sometimes at waist level, all over the stage. It was like, let's put some open flame out there, should be good. What could go wrong, right? Keep you on your toes. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially for the ballerinas yes. who were wearing, of course, these very diaphanous <coughs> tutus that were created out of a cotton or silk net that was treated with chemicals to make it stiffer and, and floofier, which is a technical term. Yes. <laughs> and brighter, so optically brighter. Yes, and uh, give that that little bit of air almost look like it's it's no, exactly. So the thing is, though, this chemical they use to treat the cotton and silk is highly flammable, and um, it makes those fabrics infinitely more flammable to the point where you just have to get a little bit, you know, close to the flame and the heat to be enough to induce mm-hmm. flames. Uh, but if you actually get too close to the limelight, then you are actually going to catch a light. Mm-hmm. And ballerinas were going up in flame, <laughs> right and left, so there were discussions and concerns, <laughs> you know, safety precautions were bandied about. That's how long it takes to train a proper oh. ballerina. You know. It takes so long and they're so high strung <laughs> and you know, it's just they're always on their toes and it's on society. It's tiresome though you have to retrain, you know, when we just had a perfectly good one. Right, she was perfectly fine. She did her job. Exactly. So there's this very famous ballerina 
who is quite popular uh, from Paris, who um, announced to the world that she would prefer to fly than wear the dingy new tutus that were being made with chemicals that were flame retarded. And so there was an actual outcry, there was an attempt to make these tutus safer, and many of the finer fellows in Australia really wanted that bright, light, local experience. Their livelihoods were wrapped up in being seen as beautiful, being desirable on the stage, looking their best. They were often responsible for their own costumes, the same in the opera, you've got your own costumes with you. They often had your own dresser that you right. used. So uh, this, this one particular ballerina though, she announced that on opening night, at, at minimum, she would always wear a traditional tutu so that her opening could be as good as possible. And uh, not only had she announced that she'd rather die than wear the old ones, but then she thought she'd tap dance some more. <laughs> and she'd do a ballet about a ballerina who's a moth who gets too close to the flame oh, and oh. dies in the flame. Oh. Yeah. No. Why did you think that? We all know how that goes <laughs> in our D&D game. We make those statements. We roll your toilet side bar and you make a flame. So, uh, opening night, she was dancing beautifully, and she dances too close to the flame, and she goes up the flame. They, they do eventually manage to douse the flame, kick it out. She does live for some time. 60% of her body burns. Her corset, because ballerinas danced in corsets with steel bones, Corset bones melted into her ribs. Oh, that was the heat of this flame. And um, she lives. Right. <laughs> she lives nine months after that. 60% of her body um, was burned down, and she died of the infection from you know the burns, and probably from that too. I would say that. Bones melted into the ribs is not really a very fun experience. Mm. So she lives on in memory in you know the ballerinas of the world, and also some of the safety precautions we have today. We run out of sand and things like that and the stage. Not only would the curtains go up in flame, but you could lose your ballerina, so it's very good to have you know your flame blanket and all of these different things to try put people. Mitigate the possibility. Yeah, or at least maybe just 10%. Not a full 60. So, there's another way. I want to burn bright as a star, but not burn. Right? Oh, and another thing about this chemical that was used to make the tutus uh, bright and airy, it is now used in fire starters from the campfire. So it's still it's around. Yeah, just. Just use it to actually set fires on purpose now. <laughs> really good. So Paris it Green. It's really hot. Yeah. Right? So Paris Green became actual uh, rat poison. Aniline dyes and rat chemistry is the basis for how we invent mustard gas. <laughs> good time. And the tutu chemical turns into actual fire starters. <laughs> yes. So good. So <laughs> far. Silver linings. Silver linings. <laughs> so, then silver phosphate's a completely different category. <laughs> oh, yeah, good time. More death! So, Tetris yes. is yet another way by which one might die in fiery, fiery death. Oh, yes. Um, uh, there was a uh, new invention called celluloid. Oh, yes. Oh, this fantastic plastic that can be needed to so many things, especially accoutrements. It was the first plastic. It really was. Um, it, I believe it was um, it was invented by an American gentleman. However, um, I believe it was a British gentleman who took it and sort of ran with it. 
Um, so do you think Edison test does? So I might have that backwards. I'll have to re-re-re-re-re-research. <laughs> um, but um, they discovered that by making this plastic um, celluloid, it can be formed into and look just like ivory, which of course was exceedingly expensive. Um, but you could manipulate it and paint it or treat it, add a little dye. You can even make it look like jade, um, which is even harder to get in, in larger quantities. So the um, hair combs and uh, pendants and earrings and cue balls <laughs> yes. for billiards. Yes, and slicker. Yes. So anything that they were making out of ivory, cuffs as uh -huh. well. Um, but they found that they could also make it into almost like a plastic fabric. And and this was hugely popular with the gentlemen, especially clerks and in um, offices, because they weren't allowed to have really scrap paper um, because paper was expensive. It was you know you had to mill and, and do all this stuff. Um, so they weren't given a whole lot of scratch, uh, scrap paper to make notes. calculations and notes and stuff. So the clerks loved the celluloid cuffs, which could just be pinned with cufflink onto their shirts um, and their collars, so that they can and they're pristine and white, and they can literally just be washed clean. And they're easier to wash too mm -hmm. than the cotton and linen if you have mm -hmm. some colors, which could be also made, you know. Uh, removable from your garments, but they require special laundering mm -hmm. and starching and really special care. If you're uh, if you're a bachelor gentleman, of course you go to your own bachelor. But celluloid cuffs and collars, <gasps> right. all they had to do was rinsed. You didn't need the expense of a laundress. You didn't have to hang dry them. They could just hang, just put them on the table and they'd be dry. You didn't even <laughs> need to marry anyone. No. <laughs> so these, this created a whole new opportunity for them. <laughs> and it gave them a whole lot more opportunity to die. <laughs> because cellulite is expensive. <laughs> if it gets too hot. <laughs> it's true. Yes. Not great. Uh, Celluloid became filled, right? Mm -hmm. For built like steel society, but also for, for moving pictures. Right, and of course that was a very flammable experience. And mm -hmm. you know, the projectors would catch fire, they were rather warm. Bit that whole incandescent light bulb, the bulb, know, yes. Really wants to set things on fire. Usually it looked not too bad as long as you didn't have too many lenses burn up that wall or, or melt or something. However, if it happens to be upon your person right. and you're already wearing fabrics of rather flammable nature. I don't know, like cotton and linen. Oh yes, um, you know, or, or uh, you know, treated with flammable dyes and other concoctions. Those things, perhaps getting a little close to that flame, might not be the best idea. Right. Bad life choice. But it's right on your hands. Yes, it's right there. I mean, so many cameo brooches, jewelry of all sorts. Perfect. And um, they were sometimes even used in trims. Um, uh, there is actually a story of a woman who had some on her dress, and she got too close to a fire, and she too lit up like a Roman candle in no time. And there was, and it's a lot like the magnesium stuff that was used for; it goes up fast. And there, there was some knowledge that uh, billiard balls would explode. Thank you. Um, but you know they sort of took it in stride. Oh, you know, well we had a little explosion at the snooker table last night. It's fine. It was a cracking good time. <laughs> I still thought it would be a really grand idea to turn that into things you could wear and hold them. So what have we learned about the means of death in the nineteenth century? <laughs> be careful of dyes. You'll die. And be careful of flame because you'll go up in flame. Yeah, don't get too close to the fire. Bad idea, and um, 
washing things before you wear them and take them and holding them in portions. No, we hope you do want to carry it to work and it feels bad. Yes, and if you do, say you're going to a thrift shop or an antique store or something, and you see something that is antique, like a hair comb or a mirror or those type of things that look like it's made out of ivory, just be extra careful because it could be celluloid. Yeah, don't, don't use it against the plenty steel of the funsies. <laughs> That's a bad plan. Yes. Maybe so melt, see if you can melt it by the stove flame. Yes, just be, just be careful because they are still out there. Also, if you actually want to get your hands on a garment, an antique garment from the 19th century, in a very bright color, normally there'd be a lot of wear at this point and much of the off-gassing would be fine. There would not necessarily be a high percentage of the arsenic left. I still wouldn't lick it. <laughs> yeah. And I probably would wear gloves as a precaution. As I am not a chemist, I would actually take lots of precautions to make sure not to poison myself or others. That is not a bad idea. <laughs> See, folks have it right. Oh, 
don't dance with those. Yes. <laughs> so the answer is, I think, most of the shoes of ladies and the bourgeoisie and the upper classes. So the British smooth. Well, initially they might have like, I, I would probably <coughs> see like a hatching, um, but those would be worn down very quickly as you wear them. I have a pair of like sort of uh, walking boots um, that are based on a, a 19th century design. They actually have sort of a rough leather sole, mm -hmm. um, almost suede, but not quite. Mm -hmm. So it's less thick. But I don't really find in a situation where the, the grass is damp enough. Hiking through the woods, they actually give me any sort of traction. <laughs> I have definitely done the turtle whilst wearing those, <laughs> for sure. So, but they're, they're, they give ankle support for going down, let's say that. And most of the lower classes would only have maybe one pair of shoes. Right. That's it. So basically what all this, what you're saying is that the Victorian obsession with death, <laughs> the photography and all that, stuff, there's a reason for it. Oh, yes. Because it was so common. There were so many ways to die. You knew people were going to die left, right, and center. Um, there was so much disease, warfare. If you were a person working in manufacturing, your life expectancies were much lower. And the incidence of maiming from which you have to try and recover, and you know, poverty is a big killer too, oh. right? Because you know, the malnutrition, oh, it's yeah, and there was no sort of oh, um, the prevailing theory was that if you were poor, you, you had a moral failing, so you deserved to be poor. So, uh, there wasn't like really good uh, programs in place to help people starve their children. It was just like, well, I mean, if you were only a better human, you just had food. So yeah, it was death everywhere. Yes, it was in constantly uh, in their food as well. The additives <laughs> that they would do to their food, to, I mean, milk was mostly chalk. If you were thinking. Yes, and there was this idea that the whiter your bread, the better it was for you. Then because it was more, it was, you know, only the upper class could afford white bread. What is this, you know? So, so as they, that idea spread, they would add more and more, basically plaster to the, because they would take the flour and they would cut it with plaster so that it would just make it deeper. And it would give it quite the crumb. People were starving to death eating bread because there was practically no nutritional value. Plaster is really just not high nutrition. No, no, and the minerals and stuff would actually cause other internal problems um, because their body couldn't process it or expel it as much. So. The truth is, we could spend all day talking about the very many gory ways you could die in the 19th century. Victorian homes laden with lots of booby traps. <laughs> so yes, uh, they were indeed obsessed with getting around every corner. So yeah. Ever present. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I do have some some cards up here. Um, this is my own personal uh, calling card, if you'd like. It has all of my information. And uh, one of the nice things about this is it has the website for my Patreon, where you can find my handout that goes into this panel that includes all of my bibliography for research. So that's, you don't have to subscribe, you can just go to the Patreon and download that for free if you are curious to learn more. Um, Where will you be next? Next, I shall be <laughs> at a winter event in San Diego, which is Gaslight Steampunk Expo at the end of September. I'm very excited to be there. Very sad to not be there. I'm very yeah. happy to see you I'm already there. in mourning. Joseph will be there. Michelle will be there. I was meaning for Elizabeth Pugh. Where will you be next? Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> very next. Sorry, here. Um, the next.
next time I should be here in Phoenix is at the Russell no, and the Con. It's in Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.